Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Jesse Krieger, is the Chief Content Officer of PowerFan, an NFT, non-fungible token that is, minting platform for authors and content creators to create and sell exclusive content directly to their audience and their fans. The PowerFan content library and exchange are powered by the PowerFan token. PowerFan empowers authors and creators by helping them get paid directly and instantly from their fans using blockchain technology. Fans can access content by staking or spending their PFAN tokens. Authors and creators can mint NFTs that provide exclusive content, personal access, valuable training, and anything else their creative minds can come up with. Anyone can stake their crypto and earn interest and PFAN that accrues to them and can also be directed toward their favorite creators. Jesse brings a great deal of experience with content creation to his role at PowerFan, having signed two publishing deals on two different continents and navigating the world of becoming a best-selling author himself twice. It's been an honor to his work with 500 authors to achieve their dreams of writing and publishing a book, and he's now excited about helping content creators leverage NFTs and blockchain technology to better reach their audience. Now, Listeners, if you have no idea what I just said, it's exactly why you need to listen to this particular podcast. Jesse's a very, very enthusiastic and well-spoken and educated individual in the world of 
NFTs, a blockchain and crypto, and we're going to cover a lot of ground. I'm excited about this particular conversation because I'm a big believer in blockchain and the direction of cryptos. I think it's important that we start to understand it if we don't. I joke, you know, I just learned how to spell NFTs and you know something, they're really opening up a world that I think we all need to be aware of and to consider and go back for some of you to the days of the internet. I know for myself, you know, I talk about the internet and I was an early adopter, but not to the degree that I could really see how it was gonna change the world. I believe blockchain, cryptocurrencies, NFTs, social tokens are all going to change the world. And we wanna be in front of the wave, not chasing it and not missing the opportunities that it's gonna create for ourselves. I'm excited about this. Please listen in and enjoy. Jesse Krager, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Patrick. I'm excited to be here. Well, listen, I'm excited about the conversation because we're going to uh, start talking and playing into your world of expertise, which is in, uh, I guess we call it cryptocurrencies. Uh, we're going to talk about NFTs. We're going to blockchain, I hope. I hope we cover a lot of ground. But before we get there, let's let the audience know what it is that you do exactly. And so when somebody says, Jesse Krieger, what do you do besides being an author and all the rest of it? What do you do, Jesse? I have, I have two identities right now. I'm the founder and publisher of Lifestyle Entrepreneurs Press. Yep. We're the publisher for The Passionate, book publisher. And I'm the chief content officer for Powerfan.io, uh, where we're helping authors, creators, and artists leverage NFTs and blockchain technology. Okay, so there's a really cool conversation on that side of it. Let's because I I'm entrepreneurial, of course, by spirit, business owner, you know, 37 years. Let's go to the first hat that you uh, described to us. Give me a little bit of insights into that uh, of what you do to support entrepreneurs and kind of what is that model that you've got in terms of business. Sure. On well, on the book publishing side, for the last seven years, I've had this publishing company. We now have an international distribution partnership via Ingram and Ingram uh, mm -hmm. Content Group. And essentially, I work with authors through the entire process, not as not so much on the writing, but once they've got a manuscript or a work in progress, we have a crowdfunding platform. We can help them crowdfund uh, for their book and for their business. And then editing, design, layout, formatting, marketing plan, distribution, um, and we're a partner for them, ideally for their for their next book as well. Mm -hmm. So that's on the publishing side, and yep. then on Powerfan, it's somewhat related, but okay. we're working with authors as well as content creators and artists to do NFT launches, non fungible token launches. <laughs> Okay. So, the, the, okay. So, the, I, okay. Keep going on that. Cause I, of course I want to interrupt you right away and start talking about NFTs, but I'm not no, going to interrupt you. Please fine. go ahead and talk about what you were doing. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, with Powerfin, it is exciting. We've been building this business this year and gotten a, a good amount of traction. Uh, we've got a few artists where we're doing NFT launches. One of them is an auction where you can win a signed painting by Manny Pacquiao, uh, commemorating his final fight. And we do these kind of interesting like art mixed with content and exclusive experiences or bonuses. So we call it value added NFTs as opposed to, and when we get into this, if you're familiar with NFTs, you know, there's some that are just images, there's some video game applications, 
but we're working with content creators and artists um, with this technology. Well, I have been paying attention to NFTs. I play in the crypto world a little bit, and Ethereum and Bitcoin. Don't really go down too many other paths, a little bit of theta, but I do know how to spell NFT. I know what it means. Uh, so let's dig into the conversation of NFTs. It is a fascinating one. And I think the context I want to give it for some of the viewers or some of the listeners is that, you know, really the Real Estate Investment Network is, of course, about real estate. It's about investing in real estate. But as we go through what we're going through, particularly in Canada, you're based out of the US, Vegas, I believe. I don't know if that's home turf or that just happens to be where you're at today. But, you know, when we look at real estate in Canada, Canada and understanding where it's going, understanding uh, inflation and what's happening in the world today, given COVID, given the pandemic, you know, we look at and I look at how do we actually keep up with inflation? How do we, in fact, keep up with the opportunities to invest in real estate, which means we need to create revenue on another in and from another source? Uh, we can do that through joint venture agreements. But the other side of that is we can also there's other ways to do it. NFT slash cryptocurrency slash blockchain. There's opportunities that exist in there. So that's the connection for me on the real estate side of it. You're not, we're not talking real estate with you today, but we are talking about where the opportunities may live for investors. And, you know, first we have to understand what an NFT is. So non-fungible token. Okay. Can we break that down just a little bit? And, I, you know, sure. and I don't want to catch you off guard. I don't think I am. Uh, but for me, if you're going to talk about non-fungible, we should be starting with what is fungible. Can you give yeah. us a simple description, talk like I just learned how to spell NFT, what is fungible, then we can get into what does non-fungible mean? Yeah, think of it this way. So uh, Bitcoin, if you're familiar with that, or even a dollar, a, a Canadian dollar is fungible. Mm -hmm. One Canadian dollar is the same as another. You could have two Canadian dollars, you could have half a Canadian dollar. It's all the same currency. It's just fungible, meaning it's it can work in any denomination. Now, on the other hand, a non-fungible token, its value is intrinsic to its fixed form. So imagine a painting that's worth $1,000. You couldn't cut it up into 1,000 pieces and have each piece be worth $1. Mm -hmm. It's worth $1,000 as a painting. And so that, that's a simple way to describe the difference between when it comes to cryptocurrency, Bitcoin is fungible, Ethereum is fungible, and NFT is not except it exists on the same blockchain. Can we go, that, that's brilliant, by the way. So it, just to give it another layer, because like I say, I like to really keep it as simple as possible, is uh, fungible, meaning that dollar, or if it's $10 or it's $20, two tens equals 20, four fives equal 20. It is the actual currency that can be broken down into Piece, pieces, as you say, and to come to that $20 total, for example. Whereas with a non-fungible token, that isn't the case. But having said that, when we go to a piece of art, and we'll use that painting as an example, right, you can't cut that painting into a thousand pieces. You can, or, or we do perhaps risk it being a replica, uh, proving that it's an original, understanding that the value is in its originality, in a case of a painting, uh, but yep. you could do prints, but even, you know, to give it value, the artist goes, you know, print one of, you know, 500 or print 77 of exactly. 500. And that's a way to actually break it into pieces to make it, you know, more valuable. 
But all of that said, that's even duplicatable. That's it's easy to make copies of it. So in other words, fraudulent, or I don't want to use that word, but it's it's like it's duplicatable. So it's like, is the value really there? Where when you have a non-fungible token in the case of a piece of art, there's only one ever. It, it cannot be duplicated because the original is always sits on the blockchain as the original. So is that, that's my long-winded explanation of it because I'm trying to figure this shit out. But is that a fairly accurate description or understanding? Well, yeah, if we use a painting as an example, the NFT would be the equivalent of a certificate of authenticity. Ah. So what, we are, what we're doing is if you buy the NFT, you then receive the physical painting or a print. Mm -hmm. But at its core, the NFT itself is the digital asset. So the digital representation, which is uh, a form of ownership and is 100% unique. So you, you, it solves the problem of duplicating a physical painting or recreating uh, an NFT that exists on the blockchain. You can see from when it was created, every transaction um, and every wallet address that it's passed through in terms of ownership, which is a huge benefit for people in the art world specifically. So I'm going to keep breaking this down, and this may seem really basic, but Sorry, you know, I just asked about five 30-ish year olds, 35-year-old, a 50-year-old. Do you know even do you know what an NFT is? They all said no. Four out of the five didn't even know what NFT stood for. So that's how new NFT is in this world. Is is that a fair statement in, in this case? Well, what I can tell you is in 2020, so last year there was about a couple hundred million dollars in the in the hundreds of millions of dollars of transaction volume for the whole year in terms of nft sales mm -hmm. in 2021 we're already well into the billions of dollars so this is if people haven't heard about it or aren't aware of it it's my opinion that in a short matter of time it'll become more commonplace like a, a web browser was to the internet Yes. An NFT to the blockchain is a use case like um, a worldwide web browser was to the IP technology that underpins the internet protocol. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the context of the everyday millionaire, seemingly ordinary, achieving extraordinary, getting ahead of the curve, being ahead of that wave that is inevitable in how it shows up, you want to be proactive in understanding it, not reactive. And that's what I want to say about that. And I'm going to preload a question in your brain because it's something you said. I want to ask you about Web 3.0 and tell me what the heck web 3.0 is but before we get there i want to go back to this nft because i know there's pieces of or there's nfts in the art world that have sold for multi-millions of dollars okay now if i go to buy i don't know a, a rembrandt i know it's worth multi-millions of dollars because it's a rembrandt but what the heck do i know about an nft artist and the value and Really? Is it really got that value? And and how do I know it isn't, you know, somebody said to me today, yeah, I get this whole NFT thing, but what's to say that the artist doesn't come in with a different name? You know, he puts the art on there and then he sets himself up to buy it for a ridiculous amount of money and then he sells it to himself, but it's really a different identity. And they go right away into the nefarious possibilities in that world. And so I guess it's a two-part question. And the first part being, how do we put value on art, digital art, 
do we know these artists? Do they have a track record? And I'm using Rembrandt as an example, but how do we put a value on it? Well, my honest answer is we don't, but any individual can. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, an NFT and art and a lot of things are worth what we're willing to pay for them. Sure. And so we're in an environment where people are willing to pay uh, increasingly higher amounts for these digital limited edition collectibles, NFTs. And that may or may not continue forever. But, you know, when we talk about like being first mover in new industries, uh, the ethos of everyday millionaire, being in this space and being in NFTs since late last year is a good strategy to ride the wave up instead of be late to the game. And, you know, one day your kids come home and they know everything about it. And you're like, what? That just went totally over my head. <laughs> well, that is what's happening. I mean, the millennials are embracing this because it's clicks away. They get it. They can do it on their phone. I mean, it really is an interesting world. And that technology moves so fast. Keeping up with it is going to be the challenge for many. So when we look and understand the, you know, when we get into this NFT world, uh, I really I'm trying to unpack it so that there's a fun to speak to the web 3.0 related question. On sure. That? Let's do that. Yeah. But what the heck yeah, is web so, 3.0? <laughs> so NFTs, it's important to mention that like web 3.0, uh, web 1.0 was, Hey, look, we're on the internet. Mm-hmm. Web 2.0 is, Oh, I have a profile. I'm interacting with my friends. I've got an identity and I can interact with people based on that identity. Web 3.0 is I have a wallet connected to my browsing experience Mm -hmm. where I have custody of the funds, but I can interact with the blockchain and purchase an NFT, buy and sell a cryptocurrency, enter into a financial contract that has no bank as an intermediary. And Web 3.0 is a commerce-enabled experience of the internet, which uh, I think is very exciting. And So do I. So yeah, and, so when, and if you, it's like if you thought liking your friend's breakfast picture was fun, imagine making money doing something you love with you know a native technology um, online. So you, when we talk about that interactivity, that next having that wallet, that would Coinbase qualify for that kind of thing, or Bitbuy, or any of those types of things? Is that what you're referring to in this in this conversation? Yeah, that's that's accurate. And like if you went to powerfan.io and you clicked on one of the NFTs and you're looking at potentially buying it, mm-hmm. you'll be prompted to connect your MetaMask wallet or your right. Coinbase wallet. Yes. And if you do connect it, then you can bid on and purchase NFTs. But notably, like this Web 3.0, you're not transferring money into an account in order to buy them. You're connecting your wallet. And if you buy it, the transaction takes place securely between the seller and you as the buyer. They then receive the cryptocurrency that you're paying, let's say Ethereum, and you have now the NFT asset in your wallet. Now, is is now it seems to me that Ethereum is generally the way you pay for that particular NFT, but that may not be the case. That's my that's kind of my sense of it. Is is that in fact the case, Jesse? Ethereum is the first blockchain to enable NFTs, and it's still the most popular and dominant. There's others, and there's newcomers as well. Um, Just to shout out, there's Wax blockchain, there's Flow, and then there's Polygon and Solana. So there's a, a growing number of platforms, each have their own unique attributes. Yes. 
And and at PowerFin, we're we'd like to say we're blockchain agnostic. There's different use cases <laughs> that's great that would work well on on one versus the other. So, in short order, we'll be able to mint NFTs to a, any uh, blockchain. So I love that. So now there's another side of this that I want to keep going down layer by layer based on my really fundamental at best understanding in a, of NFTs. So when we talk about tokens, when we talk about an NFT token, you're talking about art, like how do, where does the token part of it come in where it has value? Uh, you know, we talk about there's, there's music that comes into play. There's, you know, they're talking about tickets to events that would be then in play in, as an NFT. Can you give us a, a little bit more understanding of that? Cause that's all pretty vague to me still. So much exciting stuff is coming online. So like, let's take the event example. If you purchase tickets to an event and the ticket itself was an NFT. So now you've purchased an NFT and that's your event ticket. So then you go to the event, you scan it or you show it to get in. But now let's say after the event, the recordings can be accessible via the NFT mm-hmm. and other ways that you could access the conference material after the event in the same ticket that you purchased, which now has this rich media added to it. Mm -hmm. That's one example. With that, you know, ticket sales, especially in music concerts, have been notorious for like bots and scalpers buy it up at the second they go on sale. And then it's all secondary market sales. With NFTs, one, there's no duplicate ticket. So nobody can double sell an NFT. But two, there's royalties for secondary market sales. Right. So if you went to the event, you attended live, but then afterwards you sell your NFT to someone else at a discount and they just get all the recordings, you've recaptured some of your investment. You went to the event and now somebody else can pay maybe half the price to access all the recordings. And the conference creator or that owner receives any percent from that sale. Yes. And I guess you add to that because what just occurred to me is I remember it was a few years ago now. I don't remember what year it was. I went to a U2 concert and we bought VIP tickets and it was a great experience. And then we got a signed, I want to say is a, is a, what they would call their photo album. And they, all of the, you know, the, the U2 guys, you know, so they, they, signed this particular photo album that you got and it's really funky and cool and great. It's sitting on my shelf. Now, if I would have bought that VIP as an NFT, you know, they obviously, you two put some artistic talent behind that particular scenario with a VIP. If that's sad as an NFT in my wallet, even after I went to the concert, the NFT itself has value because if the band, in this case, you know, somebody, somebody like a U2, you know, if they do some fancy art with the ticket and the construction of the VIP experience and a past like I had where, you know, they're going to autograph and they're going to sign that photo album. Now I've got the, the remnants of that ticket I bought, which is in the form of an NFT. It actually could set up and, and escalate in value as I hold it in my wallet, you two, you know, the guys all get old and die. And the next thing you know, I've got this particular experience VIP ticket. Is that, am I on track with that? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. So like, the same way that some people um, go to a concert, they save the ticket and it's hanging on their wall or they've got the pass, you know, hanging up displayed. 
an NFT, you could be seen on your profile, you could have it be displayed in different online contexts, and it does prove that you either were at the event or at least you own the NFT. So it's a way to like represent certain um, events you've attended, uh, fan experiences, things like that digitally. But like you said as well, you know, if if it was for you too, and now if God forbid, you know, the the front person passes away, mm -hmm. there may be an increased value mm -hmm. on that NFT, just like a collectible would be for some other uh, famous celebrity who's been, you know, that's deceased. What do you think is going to happen? I mean, this really plays into, you know, I, I think it was Patrick Bet David, who's I'm a big fan of, but he had bought a baseball card or an NBA card. I don't remember what it was. Doesn't really matter. You know, $3 million. And it was really, he bought it for two and sold it for 3.5, whatever the case is. But it's, it's actually a hold in your hand, encased card of whomever. Okay. Uh, Michael Jordan. I have no idea. It doesn't matter. But the point is this, is that that is, in fact, there is a chance that that they have to they for three million bucks, the buyer is going to say, I need to know that's real. So it's got to be verified. That's a very difficult thing to do. It takes some expertise to do that. And within the NFT world, if that same card was happening within an NFT, it is verifiable. It is it is traceable, trackable yeah. because there's no way that can be duplicated. Is that the case? Yeah, that's the case. And you can think of it this way. Like, I'm a fan of uh, signed merchandise. So I've got like an autographed poster by Al Pacino, and it's got a certificate of authenticity. Right. I like to call that NFT 1.0. Yeah. Right. So you've got a signed certificate of authenticity. If I sold an NFT that said, whoever purchases this NFT will win or, or receive this signed image of Al Pacino with a certificate of authenticity, mm -hmm. then that's a way to move a verified asset onto the blockchain and provide that verification. Because going from the physical to digital, if you just say, oh, now I've got an NFT that represents a signed poster, well, do you have that signed poster? And do you have the certificate of authenticity? And so Maybe that's helpful as an illustration, but um, it is. But no, but it's a perfect illustration, by the way. And 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 that's what I mean. This is kind of you know NFTs for dummies at this level of conversation. And I know that you know you're far beyond that. So I appreciate your patience in walking me through this and I want and our listeners because I'm very excited about NFTs in the world. You know, I, you know my background. I've worked with. I've had lots of exposure to professional athletes, especially in the NHL world, but just through that, I've opened up doors. And I, and I think about the hundreds of items, literally, of autographed everythings, you know, from jerseys to sticks. And at the end of the day, they're worthless because they're not verifiable. I gave it all away over the years anyways, because I was never, it didn't matter to me. But the only way to verify it was number one, have a certificate of verification, which people question anyways. They go, yeah, but is it a real certificate of verification? You know, like, it's like, come on. And then the only other way to do it is to physically, and I did this many times over the years, have a picture of the athlete signing that particular object and holding it up. You better be good buddies with that guy because otherwise they're not interested. It's too much time. They do it a hundred times a day and it's just like they're not playing that game. So the point is, is in this case, uh, you don't have that same challenge. And I think that's really important for people to understand because the collectible side of things is really important. I think the stumbling block that I bump up against is 
is the potential artist. You know, like how do we, how do we really know this artist is, you know, like, because the taste in art, if you look at NFTs and I haven't been on your site, but trust me, I will be, I want to look at your NFTs. I look at, is it just, oh, I like this. And then I look at it and it's a thousand bucks or it's a hundred bucks or it's a million bucks. How does that value get determined? And is it just me? So what's stopping somebody from manipulating the market and bidding it up there? How's that? Technically nothing. So, okay. You could, if people bid it up, they'd have to transact real money to show a transaction. Mm -hmm. So there's no bullshitting the bid. Like, in other words, if it transacts for a million bucks, somebody transferred a million bucks or not transferred, You'd but see yeah. it on the blockchain. Yeah, yeah. put it on the, you'd you see can it verify on the that transaction. Okay, cool. Now, is this happening in the music world as well? Because I know that, you know, I've got friends who are music files and they love music. Uh, are, you know, whether it be an upcoming artist or an existing artist, is that music world playing into it as well? Do you, do you see it as a game changer in the music world as well? Oh, definitely. There's uh, there's an electronic music artist uh, from Vegas named Blau, and he did an NFT launch where it was an auction and whoever won the auction got, um, among other things, a co-production credit with him for a song. Wow. So here you are. Now you can enter into the music world by co-producing a song with a Grammy-nominated artist by winning an NFT auction. Mm -hmm. So that's, to me, a cool um, way to blend music, fans, and uh, collaboration, because the resulting song that they co-produce will, guess what, be an NFT. The, the short answer is yes. Like, mm -hmm. for music, there's a number of applications that start to remove the middle person parties, so streaming platforms, music retail sites, uh, distribution. Because if you're, a, if you're a music creator and your fan purchases an NFT directly, it, there's no intermediary. That's not going to a record label that then you know tallies up your royalties many months later. That's an instantaneous transaction. Uh, so in this sense, both for musicians and for authors, artists, it is empowering because, especially if you have interest in your work, it's a real way to bypass the huge uh, infrastructure that used to be needed to reach fans and reach customers in different places. Mm -hmm. So this is, I, I find it all very fascinating. You know, first and foremost, it these NFTs are really, I guess it's a, a, like Bitcoin. People think of Bitcoin as currency, but I've really learned to think of Bitcoin as a store of value and not to consider it currency. At this point, that's just in my brain because we keep translating from fiat currency. We make Bitcoin about fiat currency in terms of its value, but it's just a store of value. So that's I kind of stopped there in that thought process. NFTs are an investment which are a store of value. So in other words, the Upper 1% or 10% or 5% of the wealthy actually invest in art often. And, and it could be art. It could be fine bottles of uh, scotch whiskey. Who knows? But this is a way to do it, to store it, and to gain value over a period of time as well. Right now, it's a hot thing. So people are you know making money right today faster. They're riding the wave because they're early adopters. Fair statement? Yeah, the way I think about it, and it may be helpful to think about it is like Bitcoin is like digital gold yeah. and, and it's fungible. So if you want to store value, it is a great way. And also, if you're doing a large transaction or sending money to someone in another country, 
there's no easier way to make that transaction or cheaper. Mm-hmm. Like you could pay a dollar, a couple dollars to transfer a hundred thousand dollars to someone in a country halfway around the world. Mm-hmm. Try doing that with a bank, right? Yes. And well, so the banks. The the ba- the, the, I don't want to step over that because it's interesting. The banks actually control your money. Once it's in the bank. They've got control of your money. And you may think, well, I can just go to the ATM. I can get it out. I can write a check. I can transfer it. But they actually control your money. There is definitely countries that you cannot transfer money to. The bank says no. That's interesting. Bitcoin doesn't have those same limitations. So you literally can send it anywhere in split seconds, nanoseconds. Yeah, at the the fundamental value proposition of Bitcoin and blockchain is you custody your own asset. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have a bank, you're depositing money, yeah. they're custodying it, sometimes charging you for the privilege, and you can only access it during business hours. If you want to send it overseas, you have to pay a wire transfer fee mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes go through an approval process and so on and so on. But with Bitcoin, I could open up my mobile wallet with my thumb, uh, put in your address and send you a $100,000 Pretty much instantly, it would take a few minutes yeah. to settle, but with with no intermediary and uh, and just so that alone is is the big distinction between a bank, a debit card, a credit card, and a cryptocurrency wallet. I'll just finish the thought really quickly. So Bitcoin is the store of value and an easy way to transfer value, transmit it. Ethereum is like the brain. Mm-hmm. It's it's a global computer that lets you interact with a smart contract. And that's what allows all of these tokens built on Ethereum to exist, mm-hmm. as well as NFTs, as well as decentralized finance applications. They're interacting based on a contract that runs on Ethereum. Mm-hmm. And Ethereum, the cryptocurrency, is how you pay for entries being made to that ledger. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, you know, because I own crypto, I own uh, Bitcoin, I own some Ethereum. That was something I bought actually, you know, crypt, uh, Bitcoin years ago and Ethereum, you know, probably in the past three or four years. But ultimately, I'm a, a I, right now, I know the numbers don't show, but I'm a, I, for some reason, I'm a bigger fan of Ethereum than Bitcoin. Uh, they're both volatile. I think they're both great investment opportunities. And, you know, we know the volatility, we know the risk level. So it's not like I'm suggesting anybody go all in. I don't have a ton of dough in there. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's still very good. When we go back to the NFT conversation, to me, that's that is a little bit of that really starts to describe 3.0 of crypto because it's like, you know, that NFT is a really still, at least in my world, in my research, it is a pretty new conversation. It is. It is. I mean, if we're looking to hire an engineer we're saying like minimum one year experience developing solidity contracts. Wow. And that's like, oh, you're an expert. You've been doing this for a year. Um, so it's a new space. It's uh, And there's both the opportunity and this stuff's being built in real time. Like there's new projects going live almost every day. And the overall market cap of cryptocurrencies writ large is over $2 trillion now. So in some total, more than $2 trillion are active in this space, in the cryptocurrency blockchain space. When we look at, let's just talk about an NFT transaction. Let's break it down. So let's say I've got, I don't know, I've got a Coinbase account and I say, okay, I want to buy an NFT. So I'm going to go over to PowerFan, for example, and I'm going to look at 
would I say, will I call it product or will I call it NFTs that you have available that you're selling? And I go, that one's cool. And I'm going to click on that and I'm going to exchange whatever portion of Ethereum in this case for that particular NFT that tracks in, transaction completes, and that NFT then comes into my wallet. Now, does it come into my Coinbase wallet or do I have to have a different wallet? A Coinbase wallet will work. Yes, okay. Now, I'll make the distinction. If you have a Coinbase account yes. where you buy cryptocurrency, that's an exchange account. Right. Coinbase also makes a separate app called Coinbase Wallet, mm -hmm. which is where you can custody your own funds and that's what you need to interact with PowerFan or any other Web 3.0 application. Fantastic. I like that distinction. I think it's important. And what I'm really trying to give is, you know, viewers slash listeners is something to really start to look into and dig into. In, and I know we're talking a lot about NFT because it's really, really new. And cryptocurrencies, people are starting to hear about it and, and crypto and Bitcoin and in uh, any number of altcoins that are out there and Ethereum, uh, you know, in terms of blockchain. So it's a new conversation that I, I really encourage listeners to start looking into this. Don't ignore it. And, and, I, and I say that because I've had many conversations with people going, I don't know, this whole crypto thing creeps me out. I don't know anything about it, but it freaks me out. That this bugs me. And I'm going in the, in the, in the world of, you know, creating future wealth in the world of creating and building an asset base. Don't ignore this. Start to learn about it. It takes time. I mean, I can't even imagine how many hours I have into the research of it. I'm certainly not the sharpest knife in a drawer, so I learn very slowly. But ultimately, the more I learn about it, the more excited I get about it, and the more connection I make between it and building and growing my real estate portfolio, because I can make money and I can then take it, if I want to put it back into a fiat world, I can invest in a piece of real estate with that capital, a hard asset. And so that's how I'm looking at it. And I'm not saying that's the right way. And I'm certainly not saying that that won't change in the coming weeks or months even. But that's kind of the space that I'm in right now. And if and if you want to give me some guidance, uh, give me some real-time coaching and thought process because it's I'm a little off or something, please feel free. I won't take it personally at all. If so you say, you know, Patrick, I think maybe there's a better approach. Any thoughts on it at all? I, I can tell. I can share what I do or what sure. my approach is in terms of... Um, That'd be great. So I think of Bitcoin as a gateway into crypto. Like I buy Bitcoin and then that's easily convertible to other cryptocurrencies. Same with Ethereum. So what I personally do is I like Polkadot, the project. I like Cardano, mm -hmm. the project. They're both like top 10 yep. projects, but they're next level beyond even Ethereum in terms of transaction speed and cross-chain. So I hold some of those. With each of those, like with Polkadot, I can stake it and earn 15% APY. Mm -hmm. So I've got my Polkadot. It's sitting there earning me 15% in Polkadot. Mm -hmm. So if Polkadot goes up, what I'm earning in Polkadot goes up too. Same with Cardano. And then I and then for a smaller portion of my overall portfolio, I look for these deep these new DeFi yields opportunities. Mm -hmm. So decentralized finance, where you can stake your tokens and earn sometimes, you know, there's one that pays out 70% APY. There's some that pay into the hundreds of percent APY in these new tokens. So if you're adventurous and you do your research. It's possible to make 
daily returns in decentralized finance, then I'll take that and put it into a stable coin that's earning around 20% APY that I think of my crypto savings. So again, I'll just draw a line under this too. There's stable coins. So like Terra is a is an ecosystem. The Terra USD, Terra US dollar, always one-to-one with US dollar, but it's on the blockchain. Mm-hmm. Terra UST, if you just hold that in your wallet, deposited on Anchor Protocol, you get 19.5% APY. Wow. Uh, paid out it, like instantly. You can hit refresh and watch your balance go up. You can withdraw at any time. So what I do is I try and get gains through these like riskier strategies and then sock some of those gains away to earn about 20% on stablecoin. And that's my that's in a nutshell my crypto investing and like trading strategy. Okay, so we got to put a qualifier in here, which is to say this is not financial advice. No, you I'm could just lose talking about what I'm doing, <laughs> what you do, right? And I just want to always clear that you know because people go, I'm going to go do that. No, don't go do that. You know, you could lose all your money, so don't go do that. So the point is, yep. is that this is a very, very interesting conversation about what's happening today. The future is now, and when we talk about the futurization of anything, including real estate, we have to look at the impact technology is having in our world and in our ability to invest differently. So that's really why I'm excited about all of this is to actually be part of, you know, really be at the uh, the bleeding edge, the leading edge of it, if you will. I mean, within as an organization, I remember that we literally started talking about blockchain to our real estate investors uh, five years ago, at least. And right. you know something, it was like, what the hell are you talking about? And and we we went at it. We were just too early. We were really early adopters. And but and we thought everybody would get excited about it. And nobody else got excited about it. And you know, five years later, I'm still very excited about it. So, anyways, <laughs> that that's really that's that's great. So go back to the NFT question a little bit because you're also a book publisher. Does does a do books play into this world at all? Oh yeah. I envision um, in very short order, like you could have a limited series of a book, just like a first edition print run, but the NFT could unlock bonus content, unlock Mm. access to a meet and greet with the author, or unlock, say, a book club where you can now go through with other readers and uh, be part of a book club. So there's a, there's a number of ways that are more interesting than just selling a book as an NFT. Mm-hmm. Rather, you buy the NFT, you get the book, plus you get the experience with the book and possibly with the author. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that we're working on some projects like that that I think are super cool. Now, you know, it's interesting around all of this. You, you mentioned Cardano. You, you know, there's, uh, I think you, uh, Cardano Polkadot. and Polkadot. Um, I mean, there's so much of it out there. And 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 then around the NFT world, you know, what kind of got me, I don't want to say interested, but took my at level of interest to the next or take my interest to the next level was I was, you know, I follow guys like Gary Vaynerchuk. I follow guys like Tom Bilyeu, you know, Michael Saylor, like those, are, those guys are real leaders in this space right now. And Tom is just getting kind of started, but he's very vocal. He's interviewing some brilliant, brilliant guys. But I remember, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk one time when he started talking about NFTs and I listened to him recently about it. And, and just to give, people a a scope of what this is and how much there is to learn. 
Vaynerchuk is, I, I think he said he probably put a hundred hours into it before he even started to drink the Kool-Aid, you know, and of course he's spent well over the past couple of years actually studying it and he's, he's all in on it now and he's going forward. And that's, it's not to promote Gary Vaynerchuk or to promote NFTs, just understand is that that's the kind of study that it takes to get into it. And, you know, I'm not even near that, but I put a lot of hours in and, uh, and I am finally starting to grasp some concepts. And then I have a conversation with you. And then that of course opens up another layer of understanding, but that's really what it takes. And, and so I want to go back. So that was that's a little bit about me and kind of how I see it. What got you started on this journey of crypto, of Ethereum and blockchain, and of course, NFTs? How did that even get into your sphere of consciousness? Well, the, the, the most salient memory is in 2017, a good friend of mine messages me, hey, do you have a Coinbase account set up? Buy all the Ethereum you can. <laughs> and I message back, why? He, and he says, because it's going up, silly. <laughs> I was like, okay. And that was when Ethereum was $80 yeah, a yeah, token. Yeah. You know, as of today, it's around 3600 Yeah. Now. U.S., sadly, by the way. That's I U.S. I didn't buy and hold and do nothing for four years or yeah. I made a ton of money. Mm -hmm. But I, I saw the, I, I got pretty involved in crypto in 2017. I was investing in some pre-launch projects, co-investing with some friends. And then um, well, that helped me buy a house, actually. So similar to like you were saying, I mm. love the idea of making money in a fast moving digital space mm -hmm. and then buying a real asset that is very much physical. Mm -hmm. But then crypto went down. It was the crypto winter for a couple of years yeah. and I was doing almost nothing. But then towards the end of 2020, so last year, I started to tune into NFTs mm -hmm. and started to tune into decentralized finance. And those two have become two of the like dominant narratives this year, mm -hmm. uh, meaning there's a ton of projects coming out in decentralized finance and obviously a ton in NFTs. And so we're still in the super early stages, but you asked my involvement, it was like a wave that kind of mirrored the initial cycle and or the last cycle in 2017. But now I've actually, you know, co-founded a company and Am, am actively involved instead of just as an investor and, a, you know, enthusiast. So how do you tie what you're doing? And, and I'm curious about your business and the model and, and kind of uh, just interested in how do you tie, do you tie the two businesses together? Do they coexist together or do they run in parallel to each other? How do they kind of work together in this case, Jesse? They're, they're totally separate in mm -hmm. many senses. Um, different team, everything. The similarity is authors I'm working with from book publishing. I now can say, hey, do you want to explore doing an NFT launch as part of your publishing? And if so, then we bring in, you know, the power fan team. But other than that, the yeah, they're two independent companies with their own market focus. Got it. Understood. So when we talk about cryptocurrencies, let's stay on that kind of conversation for now, because I think that when you look into the future, you know, if you were to say, where do you see cryptocurrency? Do you see an expanded future application? Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about Bitcoin and there's a lot of talk about other cryptocurrencies. But how, do you have a, a, a view of the future where we haven't even opened that door yet, where you see how crypto might actually 
you know, what's the next change in the world as we see it? I mean, right now, given the pandemic and COVID, there's lots of talk about the collapse of fiat. History repeats itself. And I mean, you can go very dark, you know, down that whole rabbit hole. But ultimately, when we look at fiat currency and the ultimate breakdown of fiat currencies and why that store of value, as we called it, um, what did we call it? Technical? No. <laughs> Gold. We referred to the gold. I've lost the phrase that we use. Uh, oh, digital gold. gold digital gold. Digital gold. Yeah. So that's the word I'm looking for. So when we look at and consider it digital gold, what do you see in the future? How do you see cryptocurrencies being applied maybe in the future that they're not even being looked at today? Well, some of you listening may or may not know that El Salvador now accepts Bitcoin as uh, as a national currency. Mm. Um, Ukraine is on track to do so, and I believe Uruguay. So there's three countries presently, and there will be more. Um, so when Bitcoin is, is accepted at, on par with a national currency, that's, I think, a toehold towards even more worldwide acceptance. There's another trend of companies storing part of their balance sheet in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So now corporate treasuries are looking at Bitcoin as you know, part of a store of their value on their balance sheet. These are macro trends driving adoption. I think where that could lead is hopefully accountability for governments and central banks. You know, if you can't just print any number of dollars or some other currency, knowing that you could exchange it in and out of Bitcoin and other uh, currencies that don't have a central issuing authority, then that's why Bitcoin was created. You know, it was created in the peak of the 2008-9 crisis from a bunch of smart people that were sick of seeing banks getting bailed out at the expense of taxpayers. So it's an autonomous store of value. And as more people wake up to that, that'll be an interesting trend. Uh, another future, um, you know, oriented possibility is, you know, NFTs will represent physical asset ownership to an increasing degree. So especially for luxury goods, we'll probably see that first. But like a Rolex, a Lamborghini, things like that will come with an NFT that certifies that ownership and represents it in digital environments. I love that. That's an interesting insight, right? Because those are a Lambo or a Rolex, for example, on its own. And there's certainly lots of brands of watches. I mean, really expensive brands where that would, in fact, uh, change the game in those brands as well. If you're investing in there and, it, and there's an NFT supporting or backing that. Yep, I, I love that absolutely. thought process. Yeah. And, and if you sold the car, you'd transfer the NFT in a similar way that you sign the title physically now. Mm -hmm. and, and in real estate, I think there'll be increasing applications for real estate investment trusts could be sold as a limited series of NFTs that entitles you to a percent, both ownership and the proceeds from real estate assets. Um, there's a few people chipping away at that, but that's a huge market. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, if we look further out, like, I'll give you this illustration um, from a, a friend of mine who's a CEO of a crypto company. He's, he showed me, look at the number of households that have an internet connection. And it's a graph that goes up and, you know, gets very large. And now you look at number of Bitcoin wallets with any balance in it. So an active a Bitcoin wallet. Similar but different time, different dates. If you overlay those two, 
we're at like 1994, 1995 in terms of internet adoption when it comes to cryptocurrency adoption. Mm -hmm. So if you remember the 2000, 2001.com, and now we're 20 years after that with internet, think of and just use that analogy to imagine what did you even think could exist in 1995, if you're old enough to remember that terms of internet mm-hmm. and you can start to dream up where we could go with uh, with this kind of technology. Yeah, and, and just to give some background to some of the listeners who really, as much as we are in it and you're in it far greater than I am, we've been talking a lot about NFTs. I mean, that's a step even beyond cryptocurrencies overall. It's a step beyond Bitcoin or Ethereum. And understanding Bitcoin, for example, why it was you know back to the printing of fiat currencies, the printing of money, the fundamental issue is, is that things aren't inflating as much as really the dollars are just losing value. It's the, you know, it's the, uh, the example that I heard, which I thought was just awesome, which was, you know, if you're on a desert island and I bring you a bottle of water, what's it worth? And, you know, it's worth a lot, if, especially if you've been on a desert island uh, for days and you need water. If I show up with a million bottles of water and you know I got a million bottles of water, what's it, what's it worth then? And that's what's happening in the fiat world. We continue to produce dollars that just keep bringing the value of that dollar down. And that's the concern. Now, that's because it's unlimited. The Fed can just continue to go burr, as the phrase has now become. Whereas with Bitcoin, there is an absolute cap of 21 million. That breaks down, of course, into you know Satoshis and 100 million per Bitcoin and blah, blah, blah. But the point is, is that it is, it is limited. There is a cap and there is a number that it can get to. And that's appealing to many people to say, okay, well, I can actually have this store of value and the government isn't going to water it down. Somebody else isn't going to control it. And by the way, on top of that, something that everybody should also understand, I think Bitcoin, uh, maybe you have the years, is it 16 years or 12 years? I've lost track. How long has Bitcoin been in the world? Uh, 2009. Okay, 2009. So understand that there's been no glitches within the Bitcoin on the blockchain in that whole time. It has been an absolute perfect system. And that's something that's very interesting to consider when you're looking at, well, everybody's waiting for it to crash. You know, the big story, of course, and I I think, Jesse, you could speak to this better than I can because I'm, which is to say that many investors or many uh, people that are, no, sorry, not investors, people who are backing away from it are buying into the narrative that the government is saying, which is, yeah, it's used for nefarious activities. Do you want to comment on that? Because I've got some insights into that, but I'd, I'd like to hear your view and what you say to somebody who says, yeah, you know, it's 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 kind of, there's a lot of illegal sh- stuff, drug dealers and gun dealers that are using cryptocurrencies. Do you have a comment on that? Uh, yeah, sure. If they weren't using cryptocurrencies, they'd be using dollars. <laughs> so <laughs> if you're going to buy something illegal, you could use any currency to do that. It, it's not like a, a feature of cryptocurrency relative to buying drugs with dollars or rupees or anything. Because I know a couple of cops who are in that space of call it uh, technology, this is what's interesting about this. You know, people talk about that. Well, yeah, it's used for, you know, drug deals or gun deals or whatever, nefarious of some sort. 
And the reality of it is, is if I walk up to you, Jesse, and I go, hey, uh, whatever drugs, guns, whatever, I'm going to give you this bag of cash. So short of a, the police or whatever, you know, uh, whoever that might be, they, watching me do that, having pictures, catching us in the act, uh, or if I'm, if I'm doing that under the table so that we're avoiding tax, I mean, ultimately, Guess what? Cash is, that's what cash does. I mean, bags of cash are transferred in Colombia on a daily basis still to this day, and there's no way of tracking it. So it's hard to use that argument. But the second part of the argument is this. In the world of technology, FBI, CIA, uh, police forces across the, you know, around the world, what they say is the minute a criminal puts his hands on the keyboard, my day just got awesome because we got them. The minute they have a transaction, the minute they start working with a keyboard in their computer on the internet, we got them because we can follow all of that. And I went, when you look at blockchain, the whole point of it is it's a fully transparent transaction. Every transaction is monitored. Now, I know it's not attached necessarily to an individual, but it's all traceable in that regard. Am I, is that, is that the case? What I'll say is this, it's like, with Bitcoin, it's a mathematical certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, with the Fed, what what you know, <laughs> there's this whole thing of interpreting what the chairman of the Fed really means. You know, are they leaning towards tapering the interest rate at some point in the future? We're trying to discern: are they going to print more money, and when, and how much, and what's that going to do to affect other asset prices? Mm-hmm. With Bitcoin, there's no question. There's a limited supply; it's fixed and as you mentioned, I don't think that gets enough airtime. There's never once been an instance of double counting or um, it's worked. Mm-hmm. And if there was something, it's my opinion, if there was something that would go wrong, somebody would have exploited it at the point that there's a trillion dollars of value locked up in this cryptocurrency. So if there was some way to, I don't know, hack it, don't you think somebody would have found that before there's a trillion dollars on the table? Yeah, there's no there's no hacking it. all the time for a fraction of a fraction of that. Yeah. And I think market cap on uh, Bitcoin broke. It was like it's one point one or one point two trillion now. I mean, to give you a perspective, gold, I think, is 12 trillion. So um, both are limited, by the way. That's the thing about gold and precious metals like uh, not unlike Bitcoin is limited. Like there isn't enough to go around. Right now it's hard and it's expensive to mine silver. It's hard and it's hard to find and it's it's expensive to mine gold. Uh, so it is limited and and there's high demand, of course, given technology and given where for silver particularly. But the point is is that it's bulky, it's hard to transact with. You got to keep it, you know, if you've got bullion, you have to keep it somewhere, you know, store it. So there's storage fees. There's a lot of things where, to your point, digital gold in the world of crypto is uh, you carry it around on your phone and it's very, very secure. It's actually far more secure than gold in many ways because. Ultimately, if you have access to gold, you're at risk. So you would never want to keep gold on your at your residence, for example, whereas back to crypto, you're literally carrying it around in your back pocket. So I dropped some names of people that I follow. I, you know, Michael Sayer, um, uh, I'll use uh, Max Kaiser, Anthony Pompliano, or Pomp as he's known. These guys are, are out there in the public talking a lot. Michael Saylor, I think, has got whatever it is, 250, 300 million that he put into Bitcoin. 
These guys are, are very, very astute. They're great to learn from and listen from. That's why I use their names is that's, those are some of my resources. Is there a resource that you would, a name that you would put out there for people to pay attention to in the, in any of the world, whether it be crypto or NFTs? Uh, we now know, uh, you know, we know uh, Jesse. And so that's awesome. So who else would we, you know, who else would we go to kind of research this kind of stuff, Jesse? My best advice is read read the project documentation. So mm -hmm. instead of like, I'm not taking a dump on anybody that's an yeah, influencer or talks about crypto, yep. but if you want to really learn, like go to the project sites, go to mm -hmm. Ethereum's website, Cardano's website, Polkadot's website, read read about their projects, read some of the documentation, and and perhaps get involved in some of the chat groups of people that are building on these platforms or investing in them. And some of the best connections could be, you know, not not just the influencer with a ton of uh, followers, but if you get into a group with other people that are really interested and have experience with some of these platforms, you just become like friendly with them and, and you could learn. I, I've learned tons that way. So mm. I would say like get involved in the project discussion groups and read the project documentation. And the best thing of all is just test stuff out. Like mm -hmm. if I want to learn about something, I'll convert into that currency, tinker with their platform, try something, try to buy something and just be like, does this work? Is this seamless? Is this enjoyable? I'd probably say that. So that's perfect. I love that. That's great guidance, by the way. You know, and I overstep that part of the conversation. I think that is really important because there's lots of guys out there that, you know, and I'll, and I'll use any of the names that I dropped in that conversation of guys I follow and I learn from. But to your point, I've also read a lot of documentation in behind it, the scene. So I, I think that's great. Uh, really great guidance, by the way. So thanks for that. It's a great reminder. So let's go back a little bit and let's talk about you, Jesse. I mean, you're a relatively young man, but how did you get on this journey? What's some of your background? Because when we look at, you know, the context of the podcast of seemingly ordinary guys who have achieved ex or people who have achieved extraordinary results, where did, you know, when you were a kid growing up, where did did you always have this entrepreneurial spirit? Were you always drawn to technology to the degree that there was technology? Were you the like were the were you the first kid that owned a cell phone, for example? Where are you and how did you get to where you are today, given your background? Yeah, I mean, I grew up just north of San Francisco, so close to Silicon Valley. Sure. And I'm probably the first generation that grew up with a computer and internet connection in the household. So from like age five. My dad started a business called Rent-A-Mac. So they bought up 300 Macintoshes and they leased them to companies. Wow. And we had a Mac in the house. So I remember my, some of my earliest memories were dial-up internet, you know. Sure, all the fun noises. All the sounds. And then setting up something to download, going to bed and hoping nobody called and disconnected the internet so that my download could complete overnight. So I remember all that stuff. And, you know, for me, Steve Jobs and Apple, that was like the hometown hero. And I followed that story from like the late 80s, early 90s. And it's been astonishing. I guess the thing that's just amazing and validates a lot of what we're talking about is seeing Steve Jobs and Wozniak start Apple in a garage to become the most valuable company in the world yeah. and revolutionize personal computing in the process. So 
being around um, fast moving industries and technology coupled with an entrepreneurial drive, that's a hallmark of my upbringing coupled with music and travel and now, do you uh, you enjoy music? Are are you a musician? Do you have a background of playing music, or do you sing? Like when you talk about music, are you that place, or you just got a real uh, passion for music? Yeah, my first business was a record label. Um, I started at age twenty one. Wow, which was formed for my rock band. So <laughs> we, I, I got into business through music, so to speak, and then I've found the creative intersection of. Uh, creative industries and commercial applications is has been something I've always been fascinated with. That's so great. Now you talked about your dad and renting out Max early on to businesses. So he was an entrepreneur. Was he always that guy, or was that something he took on? And you start to realize, or did you just grow up in that environment of entrepreneurship? And uh, your dad was doing what he was doing. So it's hard not to absorb that sometimes, and other times. It is, but so what was it for you in terms of the environment when you were uh, bringing up your, when he was bringing you up or siblings or whatever that might be? Yeah, I have uh, one younger sister. Uh, my dad worked in the national office of the IRS earlier <laughs> in his career yeah. and then started a CPA practice. So um, he's been a business owner. He was a business owner my whole life um, and still is to this day. So you know, that was uh, normal, I guess. Like my first job was putting stamps on envelopes to mail out billing invoices for his tax practice. But at the same time, he did things different. Like clients would come in, he'd, they'd sit next to him, he'd look at the screen and do their taxes next to them. Uh, I thought that was normal. Yeah. People would come in and he'd say, hey, how much you want to pay in tax this year? Be all friendly, have fun, buy them lunch. And then I, it wasn't until, you know, years later, I was like, oh, no accountants are like that. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Just like this, this personal service, high touch model was my example, meaning my dad's tax practice and working very closely with people. And I see that as very similar to what I do now with authors and with creators. It's a close relationship with, um, with the talent, let's say and then helping them develop their career, um, however that takes place. So it really is relational, not transactional, uh, a, a real utility, if you will, YO utility to uh, supporting somebody in their journey of publishing their book and being the author and getting the book out of them. Are, you, are they coming to you with book in mind or are they coming to you and saying, I need to write a book help me. I know I got a book somewhere, I think, or is it just a range of clients that you do in, in that space? I mean, we, within the real estate investment network, within our community, we have many authors who have written books on various parts of investing in real estate. They did that. Some were self-published others, you know, had publishers quite well, you know, Wiley and, and a number of other publishers that are out there. But what was it for, what is it for you in terms of how you support Skipping over like the first eight or nine years of my entrepreneurial journey from being <laughs> in a band through my 20s, traveling, all that, I wrote a book called Lifestyle Entrepreneur that was picked up by first a publisher in Southeast Asia and later on a publisher in the US. So I went through the process as an author twice. And it was after it was in that process that friends of mine, entrepreneurial friends, 
that were working on books would ask my advice. One thing led to another. And that's when I got into book publishing in 2014. And I can honestly say, like, I found my career. Like, I know we've got PowerFan and I love PowerFan, but I'll publish books probably forever. Mm. Um, It's extremely interesting working with fascinating people on something that's a big milestone in their life, supporting them through the ups and downs. It's a... you know, that's the analog I see talking about upbringing. And yeah, uh, my, my my dad would see the same clients every year. And so they have this like long term relationship while having a professional engagement. And it's very much my relationship with our authors, you know, uh, over time, we do a second book and maybe a third book. So it's a years long kind of process. And I enjoy that. Now, I don't I don't want to step over your rock band experience, uh, you know, as a young man growing up. Uh, what what kind of music were you in? What 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 instrument did you play? Give us a few details about your rock band days and, uh, you know, give us some insights into that. Sure. So the band was Harsh Krieger, my bandmate, Jake Harsh, and I'm Jesse Krieger, and we we co-wrote every song we ever played um we we raised some money we formed the the record label hired a manager um put together a band ended up executive producing our album so we hired a producer and i managed to negotiate a uh, distribution deal through sony's independent distribution arm so we put together the pieces to release our record and tour the country at 21 to 23 years old. Yeah. And uh, I had a Blackberry. I was in the van <laughs> sending emails on my Blackberry. And I was like, this is the future, you know? <laughs> I can be on the road handling stuff and then we go play a show and, and it was it was fun. Um, yeah, with that, like I was lead guitarist. We Jake and I, Jake Harsh and I co-wrote the music. He was the singer. And uh, and we had a, a great time with it. We had nine songs on MTV, music on hundreds of radio stations. It's still out there now. If you Google Harsh Krieger, it's on Spotify. You know, you name it. I'm totally going to um, do that, dude. I'm totally going to yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go check Bring it out. Now. I'm 100%. not ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Why? Well, nor should you be. I mean, that's a huge, uh, you know, to me, like, it really speaks to, you know, your, you know, we, I often use the phrase or, you know, I talk about is entrepreneurship, nature or nurture. I mean, in your case, it's totally, you know, predetermined genetic code. You're hardwired. I mean, I, you know, to, to, as an entrepreneur, to take on what you took on is that's a big deal at that time. I mean, it's a really big deal. And so that's kind of cool. It's a brave move. The full view of that, just to be fair and give like a counterbalance. Sure. Is- I can't imagine doing it another way. Uh, so wow. it's one thing to be like, oh, it's courageous. And and maybe that's true. The other is I absolutely feel like the things I'm doing, I have to do them. And uh, and if I don't, that's where I've created friction and, and unease in my life. So I just got the message like, all right, it may look strange to some people, but I'm going to keep moving forward in ways that feel aligned with what's up for me right now. Right. So that's such a great conversation, by the way. I love that conversation where really, 
you know, being true to yourself, whatever that may look like. So in other words, you know, living your values, living your truth that may not align with somebody where your parents tell me a little bit about this, because I know that listeners, you know, have kids sometimes and they, they're going, well, you know, what do I, you know, I want my child, they have a preconceived notion of what their kids should do. I think that's a normal thing for parents, but how was it that given your propensity to kind of go do courageous things. Uh, what was your parents like? Were they going, okay, Jesse, just settle back a little here. Like you're taking on a lot. Yeah. What the hell are you doing? Or, or are they going, okay, have fun, blow your brains out. Yeah. Well, my, my dad was Mr. Encouragement. Like yeah. I remember at 12 years old, he'd be like, go hang out with your friends or something, but you can't sit around here and watch TV. So he'd let me go out on school nights and, and roam around and have adventures and later on, he'd encourage me like, oh, it's a good idea. See if you can make money doing it. Mm-hmm. So I'd support there. My mom, I love her. And she's not an entrepreneur. <laughs> she's more conservative. Yeah. She wanted me to be home on curfew, yeah. a little less, uh, a little more apprehensive to try new ideas and step out of the, the box. So I had the, that contrast. Admittedly, I, I gravitated more towards the entrepreneurial Way side. more fun. Yeah, for sure. It's an, isn't it an interesting insight that your dad's encouraging you? I don't care what you do, but you're not staying at home and watching TV. Get the hell out. Go do something constructive. It's great. And, and relatedly, Patrick, he said, I'll buy you any book you want, but you've got to work if you want a video game. <laughs> isn't that interesting? So maybe there's a connection there with book publishing. Uh, maybe there is. I'm sure there is. That's very interesting. So when you were thinking, <laughs> when you think about that kind of thought process and, you know, that, you know, when you, and you, of course you do it in reflection when you're a kid growing up, it's just whatever it is. Right. Or did you have some awareness around it going, this is cool. I want to take advantage of this opportunity. I'm sure you were like any young man, you kind of probably pushed the envelope on some of the things, but did you have a conscious because of the way that showed up for you? Were you, uh, I guess, mindful not to abuse the freedom that you had or that your dad gave you so that you didn't break any trust. And like I say, I get that we all cross the lines with our kids kids growing up. That's what we do. But we're also, we're also aware going, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to mess this up with that. He's given me some space. No, I I used to be much uh, less easy to be around. Like Uh, in the band days, I remember one time my bandmate was like, why can't you just be cool to hang out with? (laughs) Like, really, it was like a dagger in my heart. I was like, I'm not cool. But what it was, was I was so gung-ho. Like, we got to, like, do this show booking. We need to get this ready. Do this, this, this. I was running down a list of to-dos, and it was stressing people out. So, you know, in a way, I've just... When I was younger, I felt like a loaded spring. Ah. Like, let me out of here. I want to go do everything. Now I'm 39, I'm almost 40, and... I still do a lot of stuff, but I like pace myself a little more energetically. And instead of if I hear a good idea, I don't just drop everything and go after it. I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. Let's weigh the merits, think about competing priorities Mm -hmm. and then decide. So Mm -hmm. like if I was younger, I was like, I like it. Let's do it. Try and keep up. But now it's a little different. So when you look at the goals that you have for your business, Jesse, do you look at, you know, do you have a vision that you would 
have for your business. I want to turn this into the, you know, the biggest in the U.S. or the biggest in the world or a billion dollar company. Do you have those kind of goals or how do you operate in terms of the vision you have for your business in terms of what you set yourself out to achieve and the benchmarks that you set? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, with book publishing, I think the sweet spot is I work with a, a few dozen authors a year, 30 mm -hmm. to 40 books. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do 100 books mm -hmm. a year. I want to do 30 to 40 and have all of them have the potential to really hit the market, reach the readers and make an impact. Mm -hmm. um, and if we do everything right, there's the chance that some of them could be a real breakout hit. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, would be awesome. Um, with PowerFan, medium and long term, we're building our own economy in some ways. Mm -hmm. We work with creators. We have our own cryptocurrency, the PFAN token. We're creating assets, NFTs. We're facilitating the exchange of them. We'll have other features coming online. So it's like this playground to just do all the things I love. And in the process, there's a chance to make significant money through PowerFan. Whereas with book publishing, it's I just love it and I have to do it. Yeah. So I do it. Yeah. Love but it. it's not like, you know, it's not the most profitable industry in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's face it. But that's perfect, though. I love that, by the way. And let me, you know, let's go back to this, you know, power fan and the NFT world that you're talking about. Something that you said, and I don't know if maybe I stepped over something you said earlier or I didn't ask the question. When you look at power fan and you're, you're growing, I guess within PowerFan, are you growing a portfolio of any or an inventory, I guess we'll call it, of NFTs that you would sell? And does that mean that you're actually getting to know young and upcoming or, or I don't want to say I don't want to. I don't want to qualify it by saying young. Let's just say upcoming artists, for example, that will design and create an NFT. And then they would be within, I guess, your universe, your ecosystem. And is that like a record publisher where you have them under contract? Like, how does that side of the equation work, the business model work? Oh, yeah, that's pretty straightforward. So yeah. if you're familiar with NFTs and you know how to create them, you can use our platform for free and we just take 2.5% transaction fee. Now, if we're working directly with a, a creator, mm -hmm. we have what we call white glove service and that's still no money down, but we do a 70-30 split in the creator's favor and we help create the NFTs, build a landing page, set up the marketing, promote them as well. So so as a company, PowerFan, we work with a handful of creators at a time to, to manage their launches while having a platform that anybody can use if they're familiar with NFTs um, to issue and, and, and do their own. So to answer your question, like, yeah, with artists and things like that, we're creating like a, a digital gallery. So, you know, some people can do a launch like it's only available for this week or when they're sold out, they're gone. But for others, you could display your work, have a video that talks about your philosophy as an artist, have all of that presentation. And if somebody wants it, then they can purchase it and, and so on. So we're doing a, a combination of um, having more overall pieces listed and NFTs available and building out the features that uh, other people can just come and, and use the platform and have a go at it. 
you know, I, I find the whole topic of NFTs quite fascinating, given what's going on in the world. It's, you know, a word that you used is an NFT, an NFT gallery, which to me was like, oh, is is that uh, the first question that came up is, is that would be that like I'm walking down the street, I see this cool art gallery and I walk in the door and there's this gallery and, you know, they've maybe got some Dr. Seuss originals over there or they've got, you know, whatever, whatever artists, you know, whatever type of art, maybe they've got some sculptures is is that is that a fair comparison only this is digital world this is online is that a fair comparison is like i'm trying to really figure this shit out well it's certainly easier to market that online if you've got a physical gallery somebody has to be there physically whereas we can send emails do social media promotions run ads um, do press releases leverage influencers to spread the word and and everybody's a click away from seeing that work. But with a physical gallery, you could display um, a piece of art and have a QR code that somebody could take out their phone and scan and now purchase an NFT. Maybe that's not the original art, but a limited series of 50 digital versions. Ah, see, I didn't even know they did that. I didn't even know that they were doing that, but now I get it. That's cool. Okay. Yeah. So, so there's, yeah, online, offline, the blending of those is, is an interesting approach. The pure digital play is the most efficient one. Right. Know? So for somebody who's just getting started, like, I mean, now they know how to spell NFT. They kind of get conceptually what it is. What would be the next step for somebody who's going, okay, this is of interest to me. I'm still not clear on the blockchain stuff. So what would be some, can you give some kind of guidance of next steps from your perspective being in the industry? Uh, for people that want to create or? No, sorry, to buy. Oh, sure. Yeah, you just set up um, a MetaMask wallet yep. or a Coinbase wallet, mm -hmm. and you just need some Ethereum. So purchase some Ethereum and have that in your wallet. Mm -hmm. And then you can connect with PowerFan or any other NFT site and, and with that in place, then it's a pretty seamless process to uh, buy, list, or sell NFTs. So you just need a, a wallet with some Ethereum to get started, really. Fantastic. Any parting uh, words or advice as we wind this conversation down, Jesse? Sure. Yeah, if you made it this far, thanks for, uh, for listening and watching. And we look forward to supporting you at PowerFan. Beautiful. Listen, Jesse, thank you so much for your time, your energy, your insights. I'll tell you what, to me, this is a very interesting topic. I know for uh, many of the listeners and viewers that uh, they'll find this at least a nudge to go a little bit deeper if they've been avoiding the conversation or kind of going, yeah, I don't know about this whole crypto NFT stuff that's going on. Uh, I'm suggesting you take the time to get educate yourself on it. I think there's some real opportunities in this space. And there's guys like Jesse Krieger out there and uh, PowerFan to support you in kind of taking steps forward. So thank you very much again, Jesse, and look forward to talking to you in the future. Thanks very much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends as it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, 
If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.